1: Well, welcome, everyone, to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and once again, it is my pleasure and my honor to serve as moderator. As the four debaters you see sharing the stage with me here at the museum, and it's our first debate outside of New York City, four debaters, two against two, will be debating this motion, The Cyber War Threat Has Been Grossly Exaggerated. This is a debate. It is a contest. There will be winners and losers, and you, our audience, have a special role. You are the judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before and once again after the debate. And the team that has changed the most of your minds on this motion will be declared our winner. So on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. I'd like to introduce, arguing for the motion that the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, Mark Rotenberg, who is executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. He has been, since before most of us were familiar with the internet, a fierce advocate for our privacy. In fact, he has taken on Internet behemoth Google, filing Federal Trade Commission uh, complaints against Google on the grounds of possibly violating privacy. That's the kind of man he is. Those are his issues. I'd like to introduce Mark Rotenberg, but I'm curious to know, do we need to worry more about China or you if we're Google?
2: (laughs) I'd like to share with you a few statements uh, that I uncovered as I was preparing for this debate. One of the leading experts on cyber war said... Digital Pearl Harbors are happening every day. The person who has been named to head the U.S. Cyber Command, the current director of the National Security Agency, said, U.S. military networks are seeing hundreds of thousands of probes a day. And one of our opponents in the debate tonight has compared the threat of cyber warfare with nuclear war. Now, Bruce and I are going to try to explain to you why it is that we believe that these statements overstate the problem. In fact, what you are hearing now about the threat of cyber war is part of a long-running campaign here in Washington to move control of the Internet away from its current model to one that would give the intelligence community and the National Security Agency much greater authority to decide what people may or may not do on the internet. And that effort has been underway long before the stories that you will hear tonight about Russian hackers and Chinese plans to take over the internet and even attacks launched from North Korea. Back in the 1970s, the NSA worried about the public availability of encryption, the key security standard that today makes possible the routine transactions you engage in when you buy a book on Amazon or download a song from iTunes. NSA didn't want that encryption technology widely available. Fortunately, computer researchers pressed on, and encryption became widely available. But this is not the end of the story. Because then again, in the early 1990s, as encryption was becoming more widely available and the NSA worried that they could not intercept private communications, they said to internet users and American business, you have to use a new technology that we've developed called Clipper. Anytime you want to send a private email, we need a copy of that key that you use to encrypt your communication because we want to be able to know what is contained in your private messages. And again, Congress pushed back, and Internet users pushed back, and the clipper chip proposal put forward by the NSA in the early 1990s was rejected. The story continues. After 9-11, NSA was there again, arguing for control of the Internet to try to protect our nation, against terror attacks. Now, don't misunderstand our argument tonight. We are aware of these threats, and we are not going to try to persuade you that there are not threats out there that are serious and real. Our argument is that we have to be very careful about allowing a single, secret, unaccountable government agency, which has been fighting for 25 years to take control of Internet security... To become the dominant authority for the internet. So we urge you this evening, not only to side with our side, to agree that this threat has been exaggerated, but also to understand why it has been exaggerated. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Mark Rotenberg. Our motion is the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated. And first up to argue against the motion, I'd like to introduce Mike McConnell. Now, speaking about experience, not only was he a vice admiral in the Navy where he did a significant amount of intelligence work, he went on to become former director of national intelligence, making him the nation's top intelligence officer. Also in his career, he was director of the National Security Agency. Mike, does it get more inside than that? Well, a few things, not, not too many. But nothing, nothing you're going to share
3: tonight. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to share a little bit of a story that um, goes with that long history. And Ladies it, and gentlemen, Michael McConnell. I want to just, if you'll bear with me just for a second, just a small amount of time here, I, I want to just make reference to people who are informed at the highest level with all the information, our last three presidents. Uh, President Clinton focused on this subject. He had a special panel review it, and he concluded that it was critical to the nation that we move to address this set of vulnerabilities. President Bush, who I had the pleasure to serve, along with serving uh, President Obama, said, and I'll just quote, In the last few years, threats in cybersecurity have risen dramatically. The policy of the United States is to protect against the debilitating disruption of operations in our information systems for critical infrastructures. Now, we got a new administration. The new administration did not agree with the previous administration. Huge policy differences in every dimension. We made our case to President Obama, and he said, I will take it under review. After reviewing it, he said one year ago, We meet today at a transformational moment, a moment in history when our interconnected world presents us at once with great promise but also great peril. It's the great irony of our information age. The very technologies that empower us to create and to build also empower those who would disrupt and destroy. The key is disrupt and destroy. I'm not talking about hackers. I'm not talking about criminals. Lots of statistics. I'm not even talking about China and what China has done to take information out of this country. I'm talking about destruction of data. The United States economy is 14 trillion dollars a year. Two banks in New York City move seven trillion dollars a day. There is no gold. They're not even printed dollar bills. All of those transactions are massive reconciliation and accounting. If those who wish us ill were successful in attacking that information and destroying the data, it could have a devastating impact, not only on the nation, but the globe. And that's the issue that we're really debating. We are so interconnected. We have enjoyed the benefits of the information technology revolution. It's touched everyone in this room. You bought gasoline for your car with a credit card. You do online banking. Medical care will be improved because of information technology. We can move the information. We can understand trends. And we can protect privacy. And the argument that our opponents are going to mount is this is an argument about privacy and civil liberties. It is not. We can have both. If the law is written appropriately and there's the appropriate oversight committee, if you violate the law, you will be held accountable. I urge you to vote against this resolution.
1: Thank you, Mike McConnell. Bruce Schneier has a position in a company and also a position in the culture. He is the chief security technology officer of BT, but he is more than that if you... Listen to him on uh, any YouTube video. He is a thinker. He is a philosopher, uh, a man who has taken the topic of, of security to the human soul, asking questions like, what is trust, and when do we know it, and when do we recognize it? So he gets the title guru more. And I want to ask you, since our radio audience can't see, is the ponytail, is that a guru thing, or do you just, do you Actually, just like it?
0: it it's, I think it's an East Coast crypto thing. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Schneier. So we're here today to debate the motion that the uh, threat of cyber war is grossly exaggerated. And I uh, also, in preparing, you know, read a book full of articles and have, have some choice quotes. Uh, uh, Mike McConnell said uh, in, uh, in an op-ed in the Washington Post in February of this year that the United States is fighting a cyber war today and we're losing. So cyber war is going on right now in our country. Uh, an article from uh, an Australian magazine, The Independent, February of this year, hackers declare cyber war on Australia. So cyber war is so easy, even kids can do it. And and last year, uh, actually 4th of July last year, uh, there was a cyber war in the United States. Uh, Headlines all over the place. I have one from the Wall Street Journal. Cyber blitz hits U.S. and Korea. Uh, In this instance, uh, there were uh, some uh, denial of service attacks against websites in in South Korea and the United States, uh, which happened, we think, from North Korea. Uh, There were a bunch of congressmen actually uh, proposing that we attack Korea in response except where we think the attacks might have come from the, from the U.K., which would have been awkward, or, or actually from Florida, which would have been really awkward. <laughs> okay, so so you know, this is silly, right? I mean, when we talk about cyber war in the headlines, in the rhetoric, we're not talking about war. This is a rhetorical war. It's a really neat way of phrasing it to get people's attention, right, and, and, and to make an interesting headline. Now, I mean... What's going on really is a blurring of the threats. Right? There are a lot of threats out there. I mean, cyber war is one, cyber crime, we've heard about cyber terrorism. Yes, these are true, and these are, there are threats, there are vulnerabilities, but they're not war threats. You know, I, I urge you to really think critically about what we're talking about. I mean, the metaphors matter. If we frame this discussion as a war discussion, then what you do when there's a threat of war is you call in the military. And you get military solutions. If you think about these threats in terms of crime, you get police solutions. And as we have this debate, not just on stage, but in the country, the way we frame it, the way we talk about it, the way the headlines read, determine what sort of solutions we want, make us feel better. Right? The threats are real. The threats are serious. Cyberspace is not a safe place. But there's a, these are not war threats. Right? For the threat of cyber war to be serious means you believe the threat of war is serious. And if you're not worried about war, you, you, can't, worry about, you can't be more worried about cyber war. I mean, that, that just doesn't make sense.
1: I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, correspondent for ABC News and host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating. Welcome back to the program. Our motion is the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, and now to argue against that motion, I want to introduce Jonathan Zittrain, who is a professor of internet law at Harvard, who a couple of years back said the great thing about teaching internet law is that those who study it don't really know what it is. Yet. Well, I thought it was that they taught Jim But I got the quote wrong Have things changed and
4: <laughs> Thank you So here's where we're at so far Mark says vote for us if you don't want a police state Bruce says vote for us if you think Journalists and their headline writers And sometimes their sources exaggerate And vote for us if you don't want a military state So I stand here proudly Before you in the negative Despite the fact that I do not want A police state I do think that journalists and their headline writers sometimes exaggerate. (laughs) I want to give a more gradual view of the vulnerabilities that you'll notice both Bruce and Mark handily acknowledge. Oh, we're not saying the system works. In fact, we agree it's utterly vulnerable. We just don't like the use of the word war, and we don't like the use of the word war because it might give people a platform through which to have bad things happen after that, to militarize or to create a police state or something like that. Well, fine, we have to argue against that, but let us be truth-tellers about the state of vulnerability in our networks and our endpoints and then deal with it from there, neither exaggerating nor understating it. So what kind of threat am I talking about? Let me just give you two quick examples. The network itself. The Internet is an utterly bizarre network, and to answer your question, John, the more I study it, the more I am just agog that it functions at all. So, for example, to get a piece of data from one end to another, like this pen up to the back of the room, the sane, rational way to do it would be to hire somebody, to have a a museum employee who would take it up there, and then if it didn't get there, we would know whom to blame. The way the Internet does it is basically like a big bucket brigade. I pass it to the front row, it goes back, would you mind, would you mind? Or, for sports fans, kind of like beer at a Red Sox game. Right? You gain nothing except soiled trousers by doing it, but there is a strong normative presumption that you will pass the beer. Now, this also leads to structural vulnerabilities, because if you drink the beer or you pass it forward instead of sideways, it doesn't get to where it's going. And it turns out that in 2008, the state of Pakistan, as is its want, asked its Internet service providers to prevent people in Pakistan from getting to YouTube. There was something there that they didn't like. And one ISP, as kind of a parlor trick, chose to implement that block by announcing within the stands of fans that are ISPs here that it, in fact, was YouTube. So its announcement meant that packets that would otherwise be going to YouTube went to them from their subscribers, and then it resonated like ripples in a pond. Out one ISP to another like dominoes, until within about two minutes, anywhere in the world, if you were trying to get to YouTube, your packets were going to Pakistan, and they weren't coming back. Now, was that an act of war? Definitely not. Is it a vulnerability such that if you had malice towards a state that relies asymmetrically on this network and decided that you wanted to use this as an instrument of your aggression, could you do so? absolutely. And I do not believe you will hear them say otherwise. I don't want to rest on the good graces of any state around the world, or for that matter, any 12-year-old that wants to try to take down the net. And he's not 12, but I did ask Ed Felton, computer scientist at Princeton once. I said, you know, if you're in a 24-like scenario and your life depended on it, and you had to bring down huge swaths of the net, and you only had a week to do it, kind of planning the season ahead. um, I said, could you do it? And he thought about it really carefully, and he said, could I have two weeks? And that's the kind of thing that did not make me feel better. So I am concerned, as is, I think, everybody here about protecting civil liberties, about not having the responses to this problem be too quick, too panicked, or too military. But let us be clear about the problem.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan Zittrain. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion being argued is the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated. And we now have the results of our preliminary vote, where you, our live audiences, our judges in this debate, registered your stance on this motion before the debate began. Here are the numbers. 24% of you agreed with the motion. 54% disagreed, and 22% were undecided. That's where things started. We will ask you to vote once again at the conclusion of the debate, and the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. I'm John Donvan, moderating, and I have an initial question. And my question is to the side that is arguing for the motion. You have heard what the other side has said, and you have described what you have heard as not being a situation that deserves to be described as war but what kind of collection of vulnerabilities or what sort of action would actually for you be an unexaggerated threat of cyber war
0: well, I guess to have Bruce cyber Schneier. war you need war so <laughs> so tanks would be nice you mean one of one of the, the rhetoric we hear is a cyber pearl harbor right so which is a an opening salvo to a cyber war? So you know, the sinking of a fleet that that'd be, that that would work. I but, mean, but what but we're Bruce, is money, I mean,
1: uh, you, the, the the motion isn't that there is a war. The motion is about a threat,
0: right? But you ask me what I what I would need to see to uh, for, for there to be cyber war. I guess I would need nation hostilities that are warlike. I mean, for, I would have to be fearful of war. I would have to be fearful that, you know, Canada would roll over uh, into the United States. Now, if I was worried about Canada would do that, I would worry about Canada's cyber command and cyber capabilities. I'd worry about the, the cyber threats from Canada. You, mean, you talk about the, the damage we can hardly recover from. You know, a lot of that happens by accident. Uh, the power blackout in uh, 2003 hit, I, I think, D.C., the northeast part of the United States, southeast part of Canada. Uh, you know, that was a series of events. One of them seems to have been the blaster worm. I mean, the guy who wrote the worm couldn't have predicted on a bet that that would have uh, resulted in that. Let, but let there's me bring, a cyber action. You know, but again, these are Let me anymore. get a
3: response from Mike McConnell on the other side. Uh, thank you very much, uh, John. When Bruce spoke uh, at the beginning, he said, Mike McConnell said, the U.S. is fighting a cyber war today and we're losing. It's not, in fact, exactly what I said. What I said is, if we were in a cyber war, we, we would lose. And I was making that statement Uh, Somewhat metaphorically, and let's think about the terms we're using, cyber war, cold war. There was a cold war. We had a nation state who at the United Nations banged on the podium and said, we will bury you. There were risks, and we prepared. And if I had it to do over again, maybe I would use the word conflict or battle as opposed to war. So I want to highlight we're talking about the threat
1: Mark Rotenberg, I I mean, some of this can turn into a little bit of a semantic tangle. But Mike McConnell brought up an interesting semantic move when he said cyber war, cold war. The cold war didn't turn into actual combat and invasions, and yet we all know what that meant. Respond to that point, whether that works or not.
2: Yeah, I don't think it works. And I think the point that Bruce was driving at is, look, when we talk about war, war, we're talking about one nation state going after another nation state with the intent to, you know, decimate its economy, you know, overrun its land, uh, you know, threaten its people. That's what war is about. Jonathan's a train to respond to what you just heard.
4: Well, a little bit. There is a little bit of a philosophical thing going on here where it's like, is this a chair? And you're like, well, it has three legs and not four. And I never saw somebody sit on it, but you could. And I mean, you know, the boundaries of a chair get fuzzy. So what makes a war a war? Well, we've heard a couple of things. Who are the actors involved? And then you look at all right, what's the motive? And what's the effect? Now, what I hear is, yes, the canonical, platonic form of war is like the digital representations. This is for a younger generation. In the Lord of the Rings series, you know, when all those monsters are going up against each other? All right, that's a war, right? That's a platonic form. But you can take away a leg or two and still have the fundamental truth be... One, are we exposed? Absolutely. And what are we exposed to? It may not be a bomb coming down our middle chimney of our house, but it could be something that greatly affects our way of life. If you indulge Mike's hypothetical uh, uh, and say, what if tomorrow those two banks could be taken out and suddenly everybody that has some claim to those $7 trillion has no idea to whom it belongs, nor can they prove it, it seems to me that's a predicate with the right
1: actors the, the, in place to be Jonathan an act this of war. seems to boil down to and I, I don't want to get into this rhetorical tangle here but yeah. the word the, the word threat is in there and it seems to yes. me the word threat means something that could happen. Are you ever re- and, and you know what damage can be done um, Bruce that's what you do for a living is protect is protect a company uh, are you do you, are you able to sleep at night in terms of the stuff that could happen.
0: So so this is actually interesting. As security guys, we tend to think all about the bad stuff. But we talk a lot about the threats and in my business we have conferences on the threats. We write papers on the threats. All we do is threats. But actually most of the world works pretty well pretty much all the time. The internet works, the pens go to the back of the room, the beer gets passed and life goes on. By and large, we are safe. Yes, there are threats, there are common threats, I mean, you could look at the, the number, amount of money stolen from from the identity theft, and, and it's a big number. But you know, it's a much bigger number of money that isn't stolen. Yes, the, there's there's bad stuff going on, but it's rare. Okay. It's John, in the noise. We are
1: we are safe. Three very important words. Are we, Jonathan? Respond to are we safe?
4: No, we are not safe. Right? I wanted to put to Bruce. The question I said I put to Ed. Bruce, if you had a crack team, NSA lends you a a team of of good spooks, and you have two weeks. (laughs) Not signing them up just yet. You have two weeks, and you have to wreak maximum havoc among the devices in consumer land. The people you just told should feel safe in their homes and businesses. You have to wreak maximum havoc. I, I know it's against
0: interest to answer it, but tell me, just how far could you go? So I mean, we talk about this, and actually, after crypto conference, security conferences, people you know get beers at the end of the night, and we we have have these conversations. And there's a side that says, well, you know, the new introduction of a you know Microsoft operating system is indistinguishable from a big denial of service attack. So you know, you've you've got these sorts of things happening. You know, we, we have these things happening sort of normally. Uh, we had an ATC satellite, you know, go out because of a software update, and lots of people's pagers didn't work. You know, these sorts of things do happen. Uh, you, know, we, you could do damage, but we recover. We're actually really good at recovering, and I don't think. Given two weeks and a crack team, you could take down the internet. You could make people real annoyed. You could make – actually, they probably not get paid over time. But the techies who have to fix their computers and their networks are going to have a bunch of sleepless nights. But it's not going to take down the internet. It's not going to do anything irreparable damage to our to our country, to our society. This is not an existential threat. I mean, nothing like that.
2: Okay, okay, this I, is
3: around I, the edges.
1: I want to, in a moment, go to questions from the audience. So I want to start that process, um, sir, um, with the microphone. Uh,
3: good evening. This question is primarily for Mr. Schneier, Mr. Rodenberg. We've heard a lot of examples tonight about nefarious cyber activity as the defining event itself. But I think we've seen examples of nefarious cyber activity as part of a conventional, more conventional conflict. And when Russia invaded, I believe it was Georgia. Is it grossly exaggerated to anticipate that nefarious cyber activity might be used as part of a more conventional conflict against the U.S. or one of our allies?
1: At least take part one of that question.
3: So I think it would be certainly
0: irresponsible of, of anyone to think that any future war will not include a cyberspace theater. Right, I mean, war encompasses all theaters: land, water, and air, space, cyberspace. You know, war will fill the available space. Uh, Georgia's interesting. So, Georgia was an actual you know, tanks rolling in invasion, and there were some you know website deface, non-service uh, 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 attacks. We don't actually know who did that. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about cyber war are kids playing politics. And you see it. You see Israel, Israel and Palestine. You see uh, so India-Pakistan when, when this sort of nuclear uh, tests were going on. I mean, you see this all the time. It, it's sort of odd to think that as you're rolling in tanks, you're going to you know, make it so people can't visit some websites. They're probably not actually paying attention to that right now. But if you're someone who's you know, rooting for your side, that's what you can do.
1: Jonathan, do you have the, the, anything to add to that that moves us from where we haven't Well, we uh, actually
0: we? saw
4: in the recent uh, Russia-Georgia conflict uh, a number of Georgian uh, blocks on the web. We infer it might be the Georgian government actually trying to prevent its own people from getting some of the bad news too early. But certainly a component of that war was a cyber strategy. And we've seen in other instances... Uh, where there's disputed elections or other things, actually attacking cyber infrastructure, because information is really key. And if people are confused and they don't know what's going on and they're relying on the Internet, they tossed their television
0: set or they don't know how to work it, um, that's a problem. Right. I mean, Iran's an example of that. Right. After the elections in Iran, yeah. a lot of the innovation came out via cyberspace. Yeah. Iranian government's trying to block it and activists around the world are trying to counter that. I mean, lots of great stuff. I mean, not exactly war, but, but good things, We have a question in the front row.
5: So uh, Jonathan Zittrain, in his opening remarks, mentioned that the Internet is broken, that uh, people are running protocols that are insecure, and that it's easy for a malicious or incompetent Internet service provider in Pakistan to direct all of the world's YouTube traffic to to, to that provider. And I think uh, Bruce and and many others would agree that many consumers and people are running out-of-date protocols and out-of-date software. If the problem is, is that we're running out-of-date software or the problem is that we have an insecure Internet, why are we not calling for secure software and regulation of technology companies rather than giving power to the DOD and NSA who have never done anything to fix the Internet or fix security problems? The, the, piece you. of
1: your, the part of your question that I want to bring to Mike that's not entirely on focus is that the, that the government has never done anything to protect the Internet.
5: Is well, that true? Let's,
1: Our,
3: let's start with the fact that DARPA invented the Internet. So I'd, I'll be a good start. Place. There are two organizations that make encryption code for the federal government. One is the National Security Agency to protect secrets, and the other is the National Institute of Standards and Technology for unclassified protection. There is an initiative called CNCI, Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, and it does exactly what you just said it didn't do. It is to direct funding into the National Science Foundation, produce a cyber core. Now, oh, that's a word, cyber core. What does that mean? It means teaching kids. Uh, double E and computer science and understanding, so they can make this process better. So, this debate is about doing what you just said. It's not about accusing NSA of spying and warrantless surveillance or saying DOD doesn't do its job. It's about a debate that causes us to invest the resources and train our people so that we can securely rely on something we have become dependent on.
1: Sir, what do, you, what do you think of Mark Rotenberg's concerns, though, that the sorts of measures that you seem to be asking for when you say the government isn't doing anything about it is the sort of, is the, would invite the kinds of government interference that he finds scary and terrifying?
5: I think Mark is scared of the NSA, which is not subject to any oversight. I don't think he's scared of, of, of a transparent process to improve Internet security. Okay, so that, let, me, right? let
2: me clarify Tonight's debate topic is not whether or not Mark's scared, okay? (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to go there. We're having a policy discussion, a very important policy discussion, and I'm still having a little difficulty following what Mike McConnell is saying. He said the NSA is not interested, they're not going to get involved, not a big deal. A couple months ago in the Washington Post, he's writing, we need to develop an early warning system to monitor cyberspace, Identify intrusions, locate the source of attacks, and we must be able to do this in milliseconds and then you say we need to re engineer the internet to make attribution, geolocation, intelligence analysis, and impact assessment the result more manageable. This is exactly but I think he's, I think
1: he 's fessing up to
2: all of those points yes, of view tonight here 's the point about it, okay, and this is why this is a very important question. If the goal were to promote security, reliability, stability, the way we talk in the Internet community about responding to security threats, we would have unclassified programs, we'd be doing education and training, we'd be responding to user concerns. But that's not the model that we're moving forward now. In fact, the model that Mike just described a moment ago, the CNCI is a classified document prepared by President Bush. He was there at the White House meeting in 2008. We're still trying to get public disclosure of that document because right now we have a secret cybersecurity policy. We can't even talk about it.
1: I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. We are in round two of this intelligence U.S. square debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two who are debating this motion. The cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, and we are going to questions from the audience. Mr. Schneier brought up
4: recovery, and I think this is a key difference between real war and so-called cyber war. Would you care to comment on the difficulties of the two compared to each other, recovery from a physical war and a cyber war. First note that uh, our brethren in the affirmative set the bar at, does this create an existential threat to the country? That bar is too high. Otherwise, what happened in Grenada, I dare say, was not a war, although I think Grenada may have thought otherwise, or Panama, or you name other conflicts that need not have existential dimensions. When I think of a war, what I think of is a hostile act designed to harm, quite often and typically physically, but not always, the interests, livelihood, and, you know, day-to-day existence of the target. And that is most certainly possible in cyberspace. And when you see it happening because a 12-year-old can do it, it's like, yes, but it's not the Chinese. It's like, well, that does
1: not make me sleep any better at night. Once again, ma'am. Uh, Right there, you're the only woman in that zone.
0: My question is to both teams, and we've talked a lot
5: about how this is, in fact, a policy debate. And I would like to know what policies, concrete policies, each side would propose come out of tonight's discussion.
2: Excellent question. So part of the argument on our side has been the need for openness. We believe that the most robust Cybersecurity strategy is one that's based on openness and transparency. You know something? That's also been the key to the growth of the internet. We don't think there should be classified documents. We don't think there should be secret standards. We don't think there should be secret agreements between companies like Google and the NSA over how to set cybersecurity standards for the users of services. Just to take that step in this area, we think in the long term, would provide great benefit for cybersecurity.
1: Mike McConnell, who actually helped make policy.
3: The the nation um, typically responds to one of four things. Uh, Fortunately, the most important is ballots, and even Mark would agree there's no tampering with those. Uh, The second thing is crisis. The third thing is money, and the fourth thing is law. What I am arguing, or what I propose, is we get the law correct. We don't want to wait for crisis. That's what I'm advocating. We recognize the vulnerability at a significant level where they would be attacked in war that could cause strategic damage to this country so that we elevate it and get the right policy embedded in law. Your teammate, Jonathan Zittrain.
4: First, let me express complete support and agreement for the fragrant smoke that Mark just blew about openness and transparency. I'm completely in favor of that, too. So if you feel supportive of that, it doesn't mean you have to vote for that side, because it's about the remedy, not about the problem. But you asked a great question about the remedy, and let me give you a couple thoughts on that that I think dovetail with openness and transparency. More money to universities and research arms that brought us the Internet to begin with. That's where the DARPA money went, would be great. And I would love to see essentially what you might call NATO at home, which is a form of mutual aid and alerting. So if your computer is having issues, there's a way it can alert nearby uh, other computers that can learn to drive around that pothole it just hit.
0: Bruce Schneier. So I actually disagree that, that openness is not a remedy. Openness is a remedy. I mean, one of the problems we have on Internet security is secrecy. That when you have secret systems, you don't know what the vulnerabilities are, you can't assess them, you can't make intelligent buying decisions and use decisions about what to choose. Openness actually is a remedy, and it is a way to improve security. The best security protocols we have on the Internet have been designed openly, either by by NIST, by the government, through an open process, uh, by industry, through the IETF, another open process. Protocols that are developed in secret, systems in secret, tend not to work well. Okay, I'll go
1: to another question.
3: I would like some numbers. I don't know whether or not to be afraid, not afraid. Out of our so-called $14 trillion economy, how much of those dollars are currently lost to cybercrime? How many times have our defense systems been attacked? How many of these attacks are simply because of sloppy configurations by corporations or the government? Again, are there any numbers or facts?
1: Okay, good point, very good point. Mike McConnell. Uh, 42. Yeah.
3: <laughs> we concur. No, I, I, I I'm not making fun of your question. There are lots of numbers, millions of attacks and so on. It, it, and it's – let me put a, a little context. I, I, I did focus on the, the financial community because I just want to understand it a little bit better. The, the financial community of the United States spends $500 billion a year on IT. Now, that's moving all those – ones and zeros that represent your money or other companies' money and and so on. So when you talk about expensive solutions, at least when I talk to the banking community, they are hungry for a set of solutions that allows them to have higher confidence in the transactions. Now, let me make my point. Banking is based on confidence. We can't run the globe without it. I'm all for the wild, wild web as as much as anyone wants to be on it. But I'm arguing for when the transactions – Impact billions of dollars and millions of of people, you probably should have a level of communicating that is robust and secure. But the point is, we were in a Cold War, and we never exchanged nuclear weapons. We prevailed. But but is the
1: answer to this question we don't know?
3: The answer is there there are many ways to answer the question Uh with countless examples, huge amounts. Let me go to your opponent, Bruce Schneier.
0: All right. So, so again, no debate that the threat of cyber espionage is real, and cyber espionage happens every day. The question is about war. Uh, you asked about the losses due to uh, cyber crime. Unfortunately, I didn't bring my cyber crime data, and they've forbidden us to use the internet up here, so I can't get it. There are there are lots of numbers on the net, and and cyber crime is a a very you know fast growing uh, in uh, industry. I would argue, if we were up here doing that, the threat of cyber crime we tend to under exaggerate. Uh, we know that the, uh, the federal government spends about six to seven billion a year unclassified on cybersecurity. Classified, you probably want to double that. that, that that's what, what most people believe, you know, we don't actually know, and he won't tell us because then he'll have to kill us. He's very uh, close. <laughs> Sir um, Beard? Uh, between
4: SPA war the FBI, NSA, and their red team, um, it's true that not one organization is currently or will be running the Internet. Do you really truly feel that this is cyber war, like a cyber war threat, and that this isn't just cyber crime that happens mean, to be on a massive
1: is there, is scale? It really an, is it really a nation trying to take down yes. our functioning one... as opposed to getting into our bank accounts?
3: Yes. Okay. Uh, Mike McConnell. Uh, it is not cyber war the way you're describing it, but the proposition is – threat of cyber war. So we're talking about the potential threat of cyber war, and what I'm uh, alleging is when there is conflict, even of a kinetic nature, between nation-states, cyber will be a part of the warfare that would be carried out. What my real worry is are terrorist groups that are not deterred. Uh, Someone who's engaged in the equivalent of suicide bombing, given that they could access, penetrate, and cause damage to the United States through cyber means. Okay, Mark Ruttenberg, last well, word in this section.
2: I, I just want to restate a point that Bruce made earlier, which I think goes directly to your question. I mean, if you have a threat of cyber war, you have to believe that there's a threat of war, and you have to believe that one country is prepared to destabilize Another country is prepared to see its economy diminish, its trade impacted, and whatever diplomatic consequences can follow from that. So I think this key point about the relationship between the likelihood of cyber war and the likelihood of war can't really lose sight of it.
1: Thank you, Mark Rotenberg. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Square debate. And so here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. So reminding you of where you all stood when you voted on this proposition, the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated. At the outset, 24% of you agreed with the motion, 54% disagreed, and 22% were undecided. You will be asked to vote once again in just a few minutes. But first, round three, closing statements, and we're going to begin... Arguing against the motion that the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, Mike McConnell, Executive Vice President at Booz Allen Hamilton, former Director of National Intelligence and retired Vice Admiral in the U.S. Navy.
3: Bruce uh, made the statement that the problem is secrecy, to which Mark agreed. And that's a very interesting point, but it has nothing to do with this debate. This debate is not about self-serving interest. It's not about large government programs. It's not about privacy, and civil liberties. This debate is about recognizing the significant vulnerabilities resulting from our cyber interconnectedness which results in interdependence. There is huge vulnerability in the fact that you are dependent on electric power, digital money, a supermarket full of groceries. All of those things are interdependent and interconnected, and that's what we're talking about, those vulnerabilities. So if there is a war, cyber attack would be mounted. Now, based on the positions I've occupied inside and outside of government, I can assure you that nation states are preparing for cyber war. I support deterrence. That's what this debate is all about. What is it we have to do to be able to deter other nation states from engaging in war or engaging in cyber war? I urge you to support our position on this debate and vote against, against the proposition.
1: Thank you. Mike McConnell. Our motion is, the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, and here to offer his summarizing statements for the motion, Mark Rotenberg, Executive Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center and Adjunct Professor at Georgetown University Law Center.
2: So we've tried to persuade you this evening uh, that this threat of cyber war, key term, has been grossly exaggerated. Um, And I wanted to say that, you know, Mike McConnell and I have debated these issues for many years, and I suspect we will continue to bait them on into the future because we know on both sides that there are consequences that flow from how you judge the proposition tonight, whether the military plays a greater role in cybersecurity, whether Internet users are required to identify themselves, whether government agencies are allowed to conduct routine surveillance of communications within the United States. All of those consequences are on the table depending on what you conclude regarding our debate. But there's something about the debate this tonight which actually surprises me a little bit. And that's the fact that Jonathan Zittrain is sitting at that table and not our table. And the reason I make this argument is because Jonathan has written very persuasively about the generativity nature of the open Internet. And he has educated us about the value of the decentralized, distributed model that has made possible companies like eBay and Google and services like Wikipedia, and on the story goes. Jonathan, I can promise you, promise you, that none of this would have ever happened if the NSA had won the clipper chip debate back in the 1990s. And I'm gonna urge you, along with the rest of you, to come over to our side. (laughs) I'll get a chair for you here. We've got a couple chairs, don't we? We'd love to have you on our side. Because if you value an open Internet, if you believe that innovation and security, just like innovation and commerce, is based on the open competition of ideas, then you have to support our side. Thank you, Mark Rotenberg.
1: Well, as it happens, summarizing his, up next to summarize his view against the motion, the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated. Jonathan Zittrain, professor at Harvard Law School and co-founder of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society.
4: Uh, Mark, let me thank you for your kind and genuine offer of asylum over on your side <laughs> of the room. Let me tell you why I think instead both of you guys should be coming over here where the air is clear and the thinking is equally clear, <laughs> and where your fears can still be realized over here. You don't have to give up what you're afraid of to come over to this side. Because I was, I, I was surprised too, because you know what surprised me tonight was that if there's going to be scaremongering on some side, you would think it would be on the people saying, no, no, the threat isn't exaggerated, here's why you need to be afraid, be very afraid. But the fear machine, I felt, was, was generated over here, because what they were talking about were the worries about the remedy. If we come in and take something that they think isn't all that broke and try to fix it, we're going to end up with surveillance we don't want, with a police state, with a military state, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in some respects, I share that fear of overreaction should we get a watershed event. I know the chicken wakes up every day, the free-range chicken, and says, oh, the farmer has come along to feed me again. Life is good. But sometimes induction doesn't work just from the fact that the farmer's been friendly every day. So... I worry that we'll get an event of some kind and then Bruce and Mark's nightmares will come true because we will end up in a Cold War mentality, a conventional war mentality about how to deal with it. And that is the wrong mentality. And that's why I stand by my previous writings, Mark. And that's why when you ask for concrete suggestions, they're suggestions that rely on openness, on transparency, on goodwill and cooperation among people metaphorically passing the microphone from one to another, like an ad hoc mesh network. Creatively, Jonathan's we can a train. do Your time this, is up. and I thank you all.
1: Our motion is the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated, and now making his summary statement, uh, summarizing his position for the motion, Bruce Schneier, Chief Security Technology Officer of BT and author of the Cryptogram newsletter and blog,
0: Schneier on Security. So we spent a lot of time on semantics here. I'm going to again read this from the Washington Post. Michael McConnell said, the United States is fighting a cyber war today, and we are losing. Right? This is a position that, ex- that exaggerates the threat. It's, it's a valuable one, right? $300 million in contracts with Booz Allen this year. And it's one we see again and again. This is not a few things: cyber war, cyber 9/11, cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber Kachina, cyber Armageddon. Every one of these words gets either millions or hundreds of thousands of hits on Google. This is not just a few headline writers making a big deal. And th- you know, this might seem like a petty semantic argument, but actually, this matters a lot. Right? Words matter a lot. Words have power. Words frame debate. Words suggest solutions and words cause policy to be implemented. We are discussing how we are going to deal with Internet threats. I mean, this debate has ranged all around. We've heard about uh, espionage, we've heard about terrorism, we've heard about crime, we've heard about, about kids playing politics, and it's all here on a panel on cyber war. So when you think about this, I urge you to vote that the threat of cyber war has been grossly exaggerated been grossly exaggerated by government and industry intent on grabbing power and money.
1: Thank you, Bruce Schneier. And that concludes our closing statements. And um, it's now time to learn which side has argued best in the judgment of our live audience. We are asking you again to register your vote. I want to, um, first of all, what I really want to do is thank uh, this panel that has been just spectacular, informative, as well as entertaining. (laughs) And uh, so I'd like to um, also thank uh, our, our venue, the Newseum, uh, and our partners, NPR, WAMU, Bloomberg Television, and Newsweek. And, of course, a very special thanks go to uh, CEO Jeff Gannick from tonight's corporate underwriter, Newstar. Jeff, thank you very, very much for doing this. We have the final results in. Our motion is the cyber war threat has been grossly exaggerated. Remember the team that changes the most minds is our winner. Before the debate, 24% of you were for the motion, 54% against, 22% undecided. After the debate, 23% are for the motion, 71% against, and 6% undecided. The side against the motion wins. Congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whitmore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org slash intelligence squared.